Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Well, good morning again. Great to see everybody here today on our last Sunday on helplessness. We're already at the end of our first sermon series for the year. We've not, we've knocked one out. Uh, you know, if today happened to be your first day and, and I just told you we're at the end of a series on helplessness, I, I would assume you're thinking, okay, so they've been talking about how not to feel helpless or how, you know, how to get help. Actually, our, our series has been quite the opposite of that. We're kind of owning our helplessness. We opened up uh, back on January 8th, and we looked at a, a relationship, an engagement between, uh, we just referred to her as the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 and Jesus, and we saw, listen to this, the power of helplessness. The power of helplessness in a relationship with God. Now, we don't always feel helpless, so we came back the next week and we saw biblically that we are, in fact, helpless. We really only focused on one way. There's a variety of ways that you and I are helpless. We might be bold and beautiful, rich and famous. We might be very accomplished and not feel helpless at all. You are helpless. Here's just one little statement. There's absolutely nothing you hold in your life that you can't lose by next Sunday. Not one thing. You can lose any of it or all of it by next Sunday. Now, odds are good that you won't, but that's not your power that keeps it. So we can lose anything. That is, by definition, pretty helpless. And there's other ways that we are helpless. So then we came back the next week and said, how do we operate from this helplessness? And you might remember we honed in on one verse, Psalm 119, verse 147, a really simple verse. And we got an idea there of get up. That doesn't mean just roll out of bed, lazy bones. It means get up and you're moving specifically, intentionally to a time and a place with God. And we pray and we read our Bible. And then we came back last week and had, boy, an incredible service, didn't we? A great time of, of prayer, of, of praise, of Lord's Supper. I, I tell you, I, I feel like that's something we need to do once or twice a year, the kind of service we had last week. There's a lot of ways and places we can do that. I just think it's important for us as a congregation to relate to each other and to God in that way. So we had a, it fit in very well with, with this whole helplessness thing. And so then today, and today we're kind of looking back on where we've been the last month, and we're going to try to answer the question, why? Matter of fact, here's the why we're asking. Paul Miller gave us a line, his book, A Prayer Life. I know a lot of you got that and have been reading it. I don't know if we have any more. You can go out there and ask, but great book on prayer. But in that book, he says this, helplessness is how the Christian life works. That's what we're asking why. Why, why God? Why would you make that the way that the Christian life works? That seems odd and uncomfortable. So why, why did you do it that way? This past week, I was uh, reading a, a book uh, that a good friend of mine wrote. Um, well, probably not that good of a friend because I had to buy the book. If I was a good friend, he would have... <laughs> a real good friend, he would have sent it to me. But uh, I'm, I'm whatever's right under that. 
I'm, I'm the buying friend. And so, uh, but anyway, uh, Dwayne, Dwayne Morris is a, a, a guy I was in ministry with a number of years ago in South Carolina. He wrote this book called Chasing Donkeys. Gosh, get the book for the title alone, just to have that sitting on your coffee table, right? Chasing Donkeys. And it's a book about finding God's will, uh, making decisions, and, and even more than just like, what's the next step, really stretching out to what God has for you in the next step. So in that context, okay, you kind of got what the book is about. In that context then, no no surprise in the middle of a book, he's got some he's discussing comfort zones. What what keeps me from stretching out? What what keeps me from taking that next step sometimes is comfort zones. And I was reading it, I'm thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is exactly what we've been talking about in helplessness." Listen to this. It's on on page 78. Not that you can do anything about that, but that's where it is. Page 78, it says this. "We must move beyond the borders of our comfort zones." But we like it there, right? We like to be safe and in control. It's a predictable place to be, and there are no surprises. Let me stop right there. Here's the funny thing about where you and I work. You would think a comfort zone is a happy place, right? Did you know you can be utterly miserable in a comfort zone? Some of us have chosen, not some, many of us choose misery. Not because we like it. It's what I understand. I know what to expect tomorrow, and I know what to do tomorrow, and we are as comfortable in our misery. You know, Jesus one time asked somebody, do you want to be healed? You know, he asked that because sometimes, no, the the, the brokenness is what I understand. I, I digress. Let me get back. Unfortunately, to stay there in the comfort zone means we miss out on a deeper degree of intimacy with God that is far from what he intended. When we strive to be in control and comfortable, we rely on our abilities to adhere to a self-imposed standard of what we think God expects from us. But there's a catch. When we stay in this place of safety, we find little reason to practice our faith. Now, I just, I just, I just said, man, this is all about what we've been talking about. I just read a, almost a paragraph here, and not one time did he use the word helpless. He didn't say, he's not talking about being, but what is in control and comfortable? It's the opposite of being helpless. You see, I want to stay in a comfort zone because outside the comfort zone, I'm not in control. I'm not comfortable. I don't know what's happening next. And that makes me feel helpless. And I don't want to, you don't want to feel helpless. So we don't go. We resist those places. But the problem is, we miss out on intimacy with God. And that's the question I'm trying to answer today. Why? Why do I have to be helpless to feel intimate with God? Because out there is where we trust God and we cling to God. You see, inside the comfort zone, I don't need to trust the Lord. I don't need to. Oh, I want to cling to God. I'm never going to say I don't want that. But the way we set up our lives, I don't ever really have to do that. But I'm a good church-going person. I'm a Christian. i got to tell myself that i got something going with God. Well, you know what we do? We start building a life of our making. Well, listen to this. He says it, he says it this way. The Bible warns us clearly in Matthew 7.21 of the devastating dangers of leveraging our deeds as a means for our relationship with Him. Now, if I understand what he said there, 
You and I, I'm going to assume we've come to Christ. We're a believer. I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And now I want to live for him. I just don't want to live for him in a way that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to live in a way where I've got to really depend upon him. So what I do is I just kind of build my own way of following Christ. I, I've got to do one, two, three. I've got to believe one, two, three. And we just kind of build this system that, by the way, I can do. I don't need God's power. I don't need his help. I don't need his insight. I, I don't even need him to do this. I can depend upon me for this. And then I do these things and I look back and I say, look, I've got something going with God. And I think what Morris is saying is, you know, maybe you don't have anything going with God. Now, Morris isn't our authority, is he? Especially since he didn't buy me a book. But Jesus is our authority. And do you know that Jesus might look at people who love him and believe in him and have established a little, fist, a little list of things that say, I'm a, I'm a good follower of Christ. And Jesus say, you know, you're missing. Well, you're not just missing something. You're missing the big thing. You're missing the main thing. Does Jesus say that? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And we're going to look at a short story today, verses 38 uh, to, to 42. Luke chapter 10. Turn there in your Bible. Maybe you're using a, a Bible app. Luke 10. And I'm going to begin in verse 38. It says there, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? How many sisters have had that question? I'm doing all the work. As a matter of fact, that's not just a sister thing, is it? Uh, do you not care? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing, one thing is necessary. Mary, not you, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Jesus enters a village. As Luke writes it, it's, it's very nondescript. It's just a nameless village he goes into. We know from Mary and Martha. We know from other stories in the Gospels that the village he just entered into was Bethany. Bethany's right outside of Jerusalem. It is a place Jesus goes to a lot. And he goes there a lot because of Mary, Martha, and they got a brother Lazarus, that's right, Lazarus, pretty famous guy, he died, and Jesus raised him again. Now, he didn't just raise him again, Jesus raised a number of people from the dead that had just died. Lazarus was good and dead. He'd been in the tomb for four days, he was baking death, okay? And Jesus raised him from the dead. So, they're pretty well known throughout the Gospels, but they're also pretty well known because they're like probably what you and I would say, they're best friends with Jesus. John 11 verse 5 actually says, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that verse and I think, well, yeah, I mean, Jesus loves everybody, right? I mean, that's, that's what he's supposed to do. And indeed he does. Jesus loves everybody. And it's a powerful love. You know, when it's something for everybody, we just kind of reduce it to something that's kind of a C plus love, right? It's a good enough love. 
It, it, it's big enough and enough. It can spread out among all of us and, and touch us a little bit. No, that, that's not what's happening. Jesus perfectly, profoundly, strongly loves you, each and every individual. His love is perfect. You know that means that never more or less? He doesn't love you more when you're leaving church, and he doesn't love you less right after a sin. Now, I know right now you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I didn't have to be at church. I could be home sinning. This is a great deal. How do I get in on it? You know, his love doesn't change. Obedience and disobedience profoundly impacts my ability to enjoy his love, to experience his love. It's not that his love is coming and going or more and less. It's that my fellowship, my walk with obedience is going to have a great impact on that. So he's never loving me more and less. He's loving me perfect because perfect doesn't have any less to go. Perfect doesn't have any more to go. He doesn't, he doesn't love me more than he loves you and he doesn't love you more than he loves them and he doesn't love them more than he loves me. He can love all of us perfectly. So if that's the case, why do we need to say he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? Why do we need to know? Of course he does. I think what's being referred to there is the human aspect, the human side of Jesus. Now, that's an interesting term, the human side, as if like, you know, this part of Jesus is man and and this part of Jesus is God. No, he's entirely God. Jesus is 100% God. Do you realize when you're looking at Jesus, look at Colossians chapter 1 to back me up on this. When you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at the entirety of God. You don't need to go somewhere else. You don't need to see something else that would give you more insight, that would give you more of a picture of God, that would give you, you know, there's Jesus. And then, no, you're looking at the entirety of God in the person of Jesus. He is a 100% God. And in a way that is very difficult to understand, he is 100% man. He's not like man. He doesn't have a little piece of man in him. He is 100% man. And I think in John 11 verse 5, when it, when it says that he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, it's just a verse operating out of his humanity. Just like you and me. I love these three. I love hanging out with them, right? I mean, hey, as Christians, we try to love everybody, but obviously we love hanging out with some people more than others, right? And he loved hanging out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. When he was near Bethany, he was going to Bethany, and that's where we find ourselves right now. And we find Mary at the feet of Jesus. I think, this is just an opinion, that's one of the most important statements in the Bible that we will read and not even notice. Now, there's some big and important statements in the Bible, right, that you and I will hone in on, we'll read them and think, oh, that sounds kind of big. But this is a really big statement that I think we read right by and don't even notice what just happened. At the feet of Jesus. What is that? It is the entire essence of the Christian life. I mean, I'm sure somebody right now is saying, man, what is God doing in my life? He's trying to get you to the feet of Jesus. What is God's will for my life? That you would go to the feet of Jesus. How, why, how is God using helplessness in my life to get you to the feet of Jesus? God is using the good, the bad, and the ugly every day in your life to get you to the feet of Jesus. This is an incredibly important position. 
What, what is this? What does that mean to be at the feet of Jesus? I want to highlight real quickly three ideas behind being at the feet of Jesus. At the feet of Jesus communicates, first, devotion. I would imagine you and I could look at two people from a distance, don't even know who they are, and maybe we'd have to see their face and an expression, but we could look at that and we would say, wow, that, that person on their knees really loves that one, right? Really adores that when it is a position of, of looking up to and adoring and loving and, and being in awe of. But I think there's something also important in this love is there's a great respect, isn't it? You know, m- most of the time you and I are not going to be at each other's feet. That would feel awkward, wouldn't it? No, I mean, we're, we're equals and equals. We're going we're to be side by side and we could look at each other with the same love and adoration but still, we're, we're equals. We're going we're gonna to look at eye level. This position communicates, hey, man, I, I look up to you. You are more than I am. I'm not you. You know, I think that's a, this is a really important balance here. In our trying to understand the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, a, a passage that tells us to fear, the, fear God, and another passage that tells us to come boldly into His presence, presence with confidence, we're, we're trying to figure that out. And we rarely hit balance. Something about our nature never lands in the middle. We, we swing over here to kind of an angry, transcendent God that I'm just supposed to keep some distance from. And others swing over here to Jesus is my buddy. We're friends. And indeed, Jesus offers you friendship with God. Friendship with Him. That means I can get really, really close. You know, you can't get much closer to Jesus than Mary is right here. But in that actual position, she's looking up. There's a respect and an awe. It's both things happening. I can be close to God, but I look up to God. So her position communicates a devotion. Does the position of your life communicate devotion to God? You may say, what do you mean? How am I supposed to answer that? I don't know. You tell me. Think about it this week until you come up with an answer. Does the, does the position of your life communicate a devotion to God? The second thing, at the feet of Jesus communicates dependence. Dependence. This is a position of need, isn't it? Again, you see two people from afar. You don't even know who they are. Maybe one of them is standing and the other is, is on their knees or at the person's feet. It's kind of a position of like groveling and begging, isn't it? Now, no, I'm not likening going to Jesus or, or to prayer as groveling and begging. No, that's not it at all. But it is a position of need. Amen. Clearly, somebody in that position is, it looks desperate a little bit, doesn't it? Man, I've, I've got a need, I've got a problem, and you have strength I don't have. You have answers that I don't have. You have a way that I want. And I would actually go so far as say, and the reason I'm on my knees is there's nowhere else to go. We're way too prideful to get on our knees. I'd go, if there was another place to get an answer, I'd go to that other place. This is the only place. So this is really, at the feet of Jesus, that is a great position of dependence. Does your life communicate a position of dependence? You know, we, we looked at that passage, Psalm 119, verse 147. Get up. Okay, don't just roll out of bed, but you're getting up, intentionally moving to God. Pray. 
and read your Bible. Now, if, if I'm not doing that, then aren't I kind of walking out the door each day saying, see you, God, I got this. This is an easy day, Lord. Really, I'll be back. I think next Thursday is going to be kind of tough, but I got today. Aren't we trying to say kind of, hey, I, I, I got this. Now, I don't, I, don't, I don't think any of us have ever verbalized those kinds of words to the Lord. But again, what is the position of my life communicating? Now, I want to be clear here. What if, what if I just spent the last seven days getting up, praying, and reading my Bible? I did that seven days in a row, and yesterday I missed. You know, I mean, it was Saturday, right? I mean, Saturday's a pretty easy day. You don't need God that much on Saturday. No, that's not what I'm saying. And, and guess what? If I miss a day, no, I don't think that means you just said to God in heaven, I got it. I don't need you. Okay, you see, to get into a number game like that, that's where you would start moving into legalism. And now rules are defining a relationship, not love. It's not rules defining what Mary's doing here. It's love that is defining what Mary is doing here. So I don't think we want to get into you've got to go at least eight days in a row for it to count, but then if you miss three in a row, then it's, a, it's not a number. And yet... What I do day in and day out as I walk out the door is communicating something to God, isn't it? It, It's communicating that I I need him or not so much. I can do it on my own. What, What is the position of your life communicating about your need for God? And then thirdly, uh, at the feet, and this would, I put it number three, if somebody in this culture actually saw this, this is where they would go first. At the feet of Jesus communicates discipleship. I I must learn from you. I want to learn from you. This is not just Jewish culture, Roman culture, Greek culture. To be at the feet of somebody was made you a student, a disciple, a learner. You were looking not just to a teacher, but you were looking to a master. Now, in our culture, we don't say, I'm, I'm at the feet of somebody. We say, I study under somebody. Matter of fact, I, probably somebody in here, I would guess, actually went to a university, and you didn't choose the university. You chose a certain professor that you wanted to study under. Something you read, knew, I, I want to learn from this guy. There, there's almost in this, too, a real sense of intensity and privilege. You, this isn't just, I, you know, I'm supposed to be. I, I don't know why I thought of this. In 10th grade, I took geometry. Is that, you have to take 10th grade geometry still? Yeah, it's, it's awful. I, once I got past a circle, I was lost. The circle, I got down. And, uh, but I, 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 uh, I you know, I, it says on my card here, that I need to go to Father Toy's room. Father Toy was, uh, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school. And uh, Father Toy is going to teach geometry, second period, 10 o'clock. That's where I'm going. Now, when I went in there and sat down, I would have never in my life said, I am here to sit at the feet of Father Toy. I didn't even care that much for Father Toy. I I mean, honestly, I didn't. I'm sorry. I'm sure he's passed now. Feel bad about that, but I didn't care for him very much, and I really like geometry even less. Yet, f- folks, you see what I'm saying? Mary's not sitting here because a card said second period on Tuesday you're supposed to go sit at the feet of 
Jesus. There's no, nothing sent her there. It's not an assignment. It's not, oh, I've got to learn this subject. No, she is there at a privilege, at a blessing. It is, it is an incredible opportunity, and she is seizing it. And you know what else is, is, you know, you and I wouldn't necessarily see discipleship. The biggest thing you and I read here and would not notice, and everybody in the first century would have noticed, it's that it's a woman that was at the feet of Jesus. Because a woman didn't belong there. Not in the Jewish culture, not in the Roman culture, not in the Greek culture. That's just not your opportunity, ladies. It's not how the world works for you, right? You, you don't get to learn. You don't get to sit, sit at the feet of the great philosophers or the, the great rabbis. That's just not afforded to you. You know, the world hadn't always been kind to women. I don't know if you all know that. The Bible in the New Testament, the Bible in Jesus has always been kind to women. And because of words like submission or headship that we don't define right and we demonstrate even less poorly, we, we have taken those words and we say things like Jesus or Christianity or Bible treats women like second-class citizens. Listen, the only place women have a chance is where the Bible and Christianity was at one time a significant influence. Do a study of the world, do a study of people groups, and you'll find where women have rights, it's where at some point in their history that culture was impacted by the Bible. It is, it is Christ who always elevates women into a new place in, in culture. And I, you know, I digress, but the Bible and Jesus do not teach women, treat women. Unfortunately, men, sometimes we as individuals and sometimes we as a church, we do, and sometimes, isn't it awful that people use Scripture to downgrade people and to hurt people? Just understand that while people may do that, God in His Word did not, okay? So, at the feet of Jesus, it communicates devotion, I love you, dependence, I need you, discipleship, I must learn life from you. Man, what a picture Mary gives us. But Mary's not the only picture in this passage, is she? There's Martha, who a lot of us probably are going to understand a little bit better. Martha is, let's see, if at the feet of Jesus describes Mary's life, what would describe Martha's life? Probably a hot mess. I think that's going to be more where she is. How does Jesus describe her? Hot and bothered, worried and upset about many things. Now, while Jesus said that, let's understand what Jesus did not say. He didn't say, Martha, you're not even a believer. He didn't say, Martha, you're lost. He didn't say, Martha, you're ungodly. Martha, you're... He didn't say any of those kinds of things. Folks, Martha is well down the road in her faith with Christ. Lest we look down on Martha, understand she came to Christ when nobody else was. Okay, she, didn't, she wasn't following a crowd. There's precious few people that are in a place with Christ like she is. So her faith, her beliefs, her actions were way down the road from a lot of us. And it's important that we see that because it's to that person that he said what? You're missing the main thing. How can, how can, how can she be in that place and be missing the main thing? Well, I mean, if I use Jesus' description, it's... Because she got distracted. Boy, it's easy to get distracted, isn't it? You, you know, I mean, we, we 
got up and came to church today, right? Or were watching online. I mean, you stopped what you were doing or you didn't do other things you could be doing so that you could be sitting here. I mean, you came in here with some intent to, to, to love the Lord, to learn something about the Lord. You're giving this time and attention, but you're distracted. Not everybody, but somebody in here is just distracted because you're really excited about something going to be happening this week. Or quite the opposite. You're very nervous. You're very scared about something. And so, yeah, you're in here, but you're distracted. You're, you're, you're thinking about that. Man, we, we can be d- distracted by what's going on in our world. That's very distracting. There's a balloon. I love balloons. Man, we can, we can be distracted serving God? Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do, right? I'm, spo- I'm supposed to serve God. You're not getting distracted serving. What's Martha doing? I mean, she's making Jesus dinner. I think that qualifies for serving God. She, she's, she's making Jesus dinner. She's serving God and yet incredibly distracted and missing the main thing. How how can that happen? You know, quick story. It's a story I've told a number of times before. I'm going to tell a shortened version of it today. But when I was 17 years old, I was at church. It was during the week. Uh, I was was at a revival, Steve. That's revivals. Steve Freeman, evangelist over here, does revivals. I was at at a revival there at Second Baptist Houston in 1982. And uh, the preacher was telling this story of a uh, baseball player that hits an in-the-park home run during, during a World Series game in the 1920s. And uh, in the park, you understand what that means, right? It didn't go over the fence. He's not trotting and waving. It's, it's a live ball. He's running, but he gets all the way around, comes across, clearly safe, but he's, he's called out. And man, folks, I just had one of those moments where the spotlight came out of heaven and was just on me. I didn't even need him, the preacher, to finish the story, the illustration. It, you know, I think we use phrases like, you know, the, the light bulb went off or, or the, all the dots got connected or, you know, with those moments of clarity. I think what really happened is the Holy Spirit gave witness into my life that something's wrong. The Holy Spirit gave witness in my life that I needed Christ. Because see, I knew right there, I didn't even need to see how he's going to finish explaining. I knew I'm living my life on second and third and home. And if I'm living there, clearly I've been to first, right? I mean, I, I believed Christian things. I did Christian things. I acted like Christian people. I preached. I mean, not a lot of people do that in church before they're 17. I'd, I'd preached in that, that church. I mean, all that stuff that looks like might be on second and third and home, right? But boy, as he said that, I knew in my heart right there, I've never touched first base. Say, so how, how did you know? I, the Holy Spirit. I knew I had not touched first base. Now, here's the funny thing. If you'd have asked me five minutes before that, do you believe that Jesus is Son of God? Yes, I do. Do you believe he died on the cross for sins? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to ask. I'll go a step further. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. Now, you, imagine somebody just kind of scratching your head going, what, isn't that what it means to be saved? You, those are the things you believe? Yeah, I absolutely believe those things. I absolutely gave mental acknowledgement to that. But I knew as I sat there that night, I knew I'd never touch first base. 
I knew I'd never look God in the face and said, I love you. I love you as God of gods. I love you as the son of God. I knew as I sat there, I'd never said, I need you. I can't save me. I'm not okay. I need you to rescue me from sin and death and hell. And and going forward, I want to learn from you. I, I want to follow you. I want to do the way you have. I want to do the life you have. I knew I'd never had that moment with God. Yes, I acknowledged a lot of things, but I'd never had that moment. Well, that night, a short story here, I did. That night, I, I said those things. I touched first base. And a lot of us have. But then here's a mistake that we made. And I referred to this two weeks ago. Colossians 2.6 says, As you begin in Christ, so continue in Him. How did I begin that night? By His grace and mercy. His grace and mercy gave me the opportunity to say, I love you, I need you, I want to I learn from you. But you know what is easier for us? Is we have that moment where, I mean, we know, we know it's God's grace. We know it's by the blood. We know it's the cross. But we leave that moment and we go back to building our own religion. I go back to giving God a life I'm going to build that I can do. I give them a a, a spirituality. I give them a religiousness is, is what I feel comfortable doing. I don't have to trust them for it. We get distracted because we don't go back and touch first base every day. No, 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 no. Not every day we need to get saved. But every day I need to go back and say, I love you. I need you. And I've got to learn from you. Not just, I need to learn life from you. I need to learn today. And God, help me to especially see the places I don't even think I need to learn from you today. Every day we've got to go back. And touch first base. Or what happens? We get, we get easily distracted. Think about what Martha shows us. We know she's distracted. This is someone who loves the Lord. But does she feel close to the Lord? I, I'm pretty sure whenever you say to somebody, don't you care? That's not a real moment of closeness. She's not feeling close to Jesus. If she did, she wouldn't be saying, don't you care? Here's someone who loves the Lord. She's not so in love with his people, is she? This is her own sister. Tell her. What, 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 what's she upset about? The way Mary is loving and serving Jesus. Let me tell you something, folks. And it happens. It happens in church. Church gives us sometimes this special opportunity. When you hate how another believer is loving and serving the Lord, you're in a bad place. And I'm sure right now you want to start talking about, well, they, they, they're doing it with this wrong doctrine or they're doing it in this wrong way. Okay, maybe there's something to be fixed there. But when you're getting, what's the words Jesus used? Hot and bothered by how somebody loves and serves the Lord. They ain't the problem. I mean, that's exactly what he says. That's what Mary's done and I ain't taking it from her. Go look in the mirror. This is somebody who loves Jesus. Mary is somebody who not only loves Jesus, but greatly trusts Jesus. And yet, how does he describe her? You are worried about many things. I tell you what, being distracted profoundly touches our walk with Christ. 
So when we ask the question, why does God use helplessness? Folks, that wasn't God's idea. Helplessness doesn't come from God. He wants you to live and experience with the power that raised his son from the grave. He wants you to have all of the wisdom and knowledge in the world. He doesn't want you to feel alone. He doesn't want you to feel scared. Helplessness doesn't come from God. He wants you to enjoy him without ever experiencing that. But in our pride, in our sin, in our self-sufficiency, we've made helplessness sometimes the only reason that we go to God. We built this, not God. It doesn't have to be helplessness that sends you to the feet of Jesus. Do you know you and I can actually choose without being feeling any helplessness at all. We can choose to get up, pray, read our Bible at the feet of Jesus. Cynthia Held said this, God does not have a secret society of intimate friends. You are as close to God as you choose to be. Let's pray. Father, we want to be close. And yet even in a desire to be close, we'll we'll build our own model for closeness and tell us we've achieved it. When perhaps we're not, we're not trusting, we're not feeling close. Lord, help all of us this week as, as we roll through our days to, to have Holy Spirit insight, to Holy Spirit evaluation. Man, what's the position of my life communicating? Mary and Martha, boy, they show us two profound pictures. And you love both of them. And they both love you. One, though, gives us a picture we really want to aim at. And the other, we really want to avoid. Lord, I am, we are so incredibly distracted by a sentence that somebody said yesterday. By an action that's going on in our lives, by what's going on. We're just so distracted by so many things. God, I would pray for myself for each of us. There's no greater discipline. There's no greater love in our life than getting up, praying, and reading our Bible at your feet. Help us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.